I was born uh, on the first day of 1980. Uh, in fact, uh, my mom is here tonight. I was born a minute after midnight on the first day of 1980, which makes me a child of the 80s. And um, how many of the rest of you were born in the 80s, just so we can get a picture of all of us? Yeah. And even if you weren't born in the 80s, if you were born in the 70s or the 60s or the 50s, um, you'll know something about the 80s is that it had some pretty brilliant TV. Um, do you guys remember the show ALF? you guys remember ALF? Which, by the way, this whole intro that I'm getting ready to do, I will not be able to do in the second service at all, just so we're all on the same ALF? What kind of... Um, you guys remember the Wonder Years? Yeah. Man. Uh, how about Cheers? Any Cheers watchers? Yeah. Any other uh, 80 nominees for really good 80s TV show? Family Ties. Well, was that, uh, who, who's, it, who's the main dude in Family? Michael J. Fox, that's right, that's right. Any other good ones? Friends? Uh, no, I think it's good show, but that, I think that was the 90s. I think that was a 90s show. Well, another, another show that came out in the 80s was this show right here, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Now, for you younger folk, this was the origination of Cribs, okay? Um, MTV later came out with, you know, a little bit more relevant version of Cribs, but uh, the Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous was uh, kind of the trend-setting TV show that taught us all about how deep in our, the longings of our heart we want to be billionaires. And so if you want to have some fun, uh, get on YouTube and look up uh, Lifestyle and Richard Fabus episodes, and it's pretty humorous uh, to see how it all fluctuates and how they make it uh, come out. But, but the, the big like draw I think that the show is wanting is, is how do these billionaires, millionaires, like how do they live? What, what is their lifestyle? And in fact, uh, is it a kind of lifestyle that maybe, that maybe we should want? Uh, and so I, I found myself, um, you know, watching some of the episodes being like, that would be interesting, right? Like having a jaguar as a pet, right? Like there, there's certain components of that lifestyle that seem interesting. Uh, there's other aspects of it that seem dull, that seem monotonous, that seem uh, so self-focused. Um, I was drawn to this word, a lifestyle, uh, so drawn to it that I started uh, reading, as many of you do, uh, Webster's Dictionary. And just so we're all on the same page, here's how Webster's Dictionary defines lifestyle. The way in which a person or group lives, that seems obvious, right? Like, thank you, Webster. Um, but it really begs a question. We've been watching the Israelites move a lot, just to summarize what's happened uh, they have now entered into the promised land, uh, a whole bunch of them, 1.5 to 2.5 million Jews. Uh, Joshua is at the helm of leadership. Uh, we watched them uh, take and ransack uh, the city of Jericho. We then watched them be defeated at Ai because of Achan's sin. Soon after, they went back and defeated Ai. So they've got two wins. We'll call it one loss uh, as the record right now, two and one, not bad. But tonight we're going to see um, how the lifestyle of the Israelites is starting to play out. And uh, I was sharing uh, beforehand with uh, our crew that prays, and 
This is just one of those stories that has really, really convicted me, softened me. And uh, so I'm just, I'm praying that God would gift all of us together tonight from his word um, with some opportunities to grow and rest in his grace. So that said, would you guys open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. We're going to study the whole chapter, uh, Joshua 9 tonight, which means there's a good chance we'll be here till 10 or so. I hope you've uh, made arrangements and uh, for all those kids that have early bedtimes, sorry about you. Um, Joshua chapter 9, let's start in verse 1, try to deal with this in uh, some chunks as we move along. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. Well, what did they hear of? They heard of the conquering of Ai. They heard of the conquering of Jericho. Verse 2 says this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So I want to show you where some of these uh, lands are, some of these Canaanite nations. Uh, you can see here there's some added ones as well, the Amorites and the Philistines. But overall, you can see uh, how uh, right now Canaan is broken up into these lands. Well, a word is traveling fast. Okay, Israel has come up from Egypt, spending some years in the wilderness after over 400 years in Egyptian slavery. And now all of a sudden what's happening is this massive fortified city in Jericho has fallen. This great city in Ai has fallen. And so all these other lands are like, whoa, 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 like we... We need to do something about this. And so however it is that they coordinate, they somehow get together and build one unified force. And their plan is going to be to attack uh, the nation of Israel together. The question is why? Remember what happened in Jericho? Do you guys remember what Rahab said? Rahab, the prostitute with the name, said, Our hearts have melted because of how we've heard what your God has done. Right. Well, now we see a little bit different attitude. It's not one of melting. These, these armies aren't just laying their weapons down. They're willing to fight. The question is why? Because word has also spread, not just that Jericho and Ai have fallen, but word also spread that the nation of Israel was defeated at Ai, that people were beaten, that 36 died, which makes Israel now not invincible. It makes them human, we could say. It, it makes them... Uh, have a little bit more life. And so it, it causes some confidence to rise. They, they figure, listen, if we bind together, build an army, build a massive fortress together that maybe we can win. But there's a nation, uh, a land that has a little bit different attitude. Look at verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out, verse 5, patched sandals on their feet. And I know some of you guys would say that the worn out sandals are the best kind. They're kind of, you know, they grooved to your feet. Also worn out clothes. And all the provisions were dry and crumbly. So Gibeon, next slide, just so we all have a frame of reference. It's a little bit north of Jerusalem, okay, about nine miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. You can see where we've come up, Shatim there on the right side of the Jordan River uh, to Jericho. Right now our encampment is at Gilgal, 
Okay, we've just seen the fall of Bethel and Ai, the small dot to the lower right of it. And here are the Gibeonites. So there are some that gather together with fists. And then there's others that the scripture says use some cunning. Some come to the fight with fists. Some come to the fight with smarts. What I want to know is which one are you? Okay. Are you more of a come to the fight with, with fists, some brass knuckles? Or are you more of trying to come up with a cunning plan, just so we can all have a frame of reference? How many of you are, are fist fighters, right? You're like, you raise up the dukes, you're going at it, okay? And a bunch of liars, all right? Okay, thank you, Kale. I appreciate your honesty. Good to have you back. How many of you guys are cunning? You're wise, you're like, okay, make a plan, all right? And a whole bunch of people that fall somewhere in between, I guess? Okay. Um, well, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm more of a lover, not a fighter, but... With a ski trip uh, coming up for us here soon, I thought I'd share this story with you. So when I was in uh, seventh grade, um, I had went on a ski trip, a youth group ski trip, and uh, I, I happened to be sitting by a female on the bus. And this is just, you know, this is where bad things happen, right? Youth group trips, male and female sitting side by side on the bus. And I ended up holding hands with a girl named uh, Courtney Oldfield, Okay. And uh, I was pretty excited about it. Um, she was in eighth grade. You know, I thought this was going to be a, a massive uh, reputation advancement for myself. Well, when I get home, come, come to find out, Courtney had a boyfriend, okay? And uh, not just did she have a boyfriend, but she happened to be dating, again, little did I know, uh, she happened to be dating the, the school bully, okay? Like the school stud, the school like he's going to, you know, eat my lunch kind of guy. And so word starts spreading fast that this dude wants to fight me. Now, listen, I, I've never, you know, I've never pulled my fists up ever in my life, you know, so I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. So here we go. One day, I eat lunch, okay, walking out of lunch, minding my own business, and here comes Jeremy, right, looking right at me. And I'm like, Lord, like, is this, are you calling me home now? You know, like, is this, <laughs> is it over, Lord? Right. And, and what happens is he... Jeremy, he comes at me, not with a fist, but with an open hand, okay? I don't know if any of you guys have been punched with an open hand. It has a little bit, you know, of a different angle. So he right uppercuts me, okay, to my right cheek with his right open hand, all right? So just boom, okay? And in my non-fist but kind of cunning ways, I just looked at him and I said, is that, is that all you have? <laughs> now, I hadn't thought it all through, right? Like, I... I Right? Like I was just kind of in react mode, right? And, uh, and he just looked at me. And, uh, and, and like a year later, we were super good friends. Like, like I, is that all you got? And it was like with a little cunning, no fist action, that the dude actually came to respect me. Now, uh, you know, I'm not saying that that is maybe your, your mojo in all circumstances and all ways, but in that moment, it kind of worked for me. And, and, and that's what the Gibeonites have done here. All these other nations come with some fists. We're going to fight this out. We're going to go against the nation of Israel. They're vulnerable. They got beat at AI. The Gibeonites are like, hold on a second. I think we actually got a plan. Well, you saw the first fruits of their plan. They're going to come to the nation of Israel with some worn out stuff. We're going to see why here in just a second, the Gibeonites form a plan of deception. Verse 6, and they went to Joshua, did the Gibeonites, in the camp at Gilgal, like we just mentioned, 
and said to him, said to Joshua and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Now, do you see the old wineskins and the worn out sandals and all the, like the oldness of their stuff, what they're trying to do? They're, they're trying to show we've, we've been on the journey for a, for a minute. Okay. Look, like we've been walking so far, our sandals are worn out. We've been moving so far, our wineskins are old. And so they asked Joshua to make a covenant. Okay. Now, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Well, there is one asterisk in the book of Deuteronomy about the nation of Israel and their approach with other nations. You remember when we started Joshua, I reminded you, the plan was wipe out all of the Canaanite nations. In Deuteronomy, there's one asterisk. So the question is, do these people know the asterisk? And I can only guess, yes. Okay, let me show you the text. Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. This is a a distant country, not one of the Canaanite countries. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be forced labor for you and shall serve you. Okay, talking about a land such as not the Gibeonites, okay? Uh, Next slide. Let me show you how this continues a little bit later in verse 15. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of the nations here in Canaan, okay? But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. Let me summarize. Anything in Canaan dies. An, an outside distant country, offer them peace. And so maybe knowing the asterisk, I can only assume at this point, the Gibeonites come and they say, look, we're, we're from a distant land, right? Through some cunning, through some deception, they say, make a covenant. Let's see how that goes for him. Verse 7. But the man of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? So the initial guts reaction is suspicion. Right? So there's some men, some people, some folks from the land of Israel who are like, hold, hold on a second, hold on a second. What's, what's going on here? It's like their, their initial check inside of them is, no, 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 this, this story isn't all checking out. You guys all relate to this, okay? If you're a parent, you relate to this because you spend your life suspicious, right? If you, if you have children, you're constantly suspicious, right? Who did that? You? No, no, no. It wasn't me, right? Like you're always, you know, CSIing your family. You can relate to this. It's that like instant gut feeling like, no, no, this isn't right. And that's how instantly these people respond. Perhaps you live among us. Perhaps you're you're lying. But look at how shrewdly they respond in verse 8. No, we are your servants. Well played, Gibeonites, right? Oh, no, no, no. Listen, we're here to serve. We're, We're here to labor. We're here to guide you. We're here to give you tea and crumpets. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? So they respond, verse 9. They said to him, from a very distant country. Why in the world does Joshua not catch up, right, on the ambiguity here, right? Oh, we're from a very distant land. Distant landville, right? Like, it, come on. Like, they just say we're from a distant country. They give no specifics, okay? 
Now, anyone who's doing some CSIing, especially, again, as a parent to your kids, once the, once the details start getting vague, your suspicion rises. Okay, apparently not here. Oh, we're from a very distant country. One that, you know, we don't even want to talk about the name of. Okay, your servants have come. They mention themselves as servants again. After the comma, look at what they say. Because of the name of the Lord your God. Now, this has happened once before with a character that I've already mentioned tonight. Come on, who is it? Rahab. Everyone falls in Jericho. Everyone dies except God was merciful on Rahab and her family. Why? Because she noted the power of God. And so it seems like the Gibeonites are doing something similar. Now, chapters later, we have heard a report, middle of verse 9, of him and all that he did in Egypt. Now, do you see their shrewdness in that statement? I mean, the the Gibeonites are brilliant. Why would they mention Egypt? If they mentioned the recent battles in Jericho and Ai, not so distant. But by mentioning Jericho, like way back when, do you guys understand what's happening? Now they're starting to build some credence that maybe they are from far away. Verse 10, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sahon, the king of Hezbron, and to Og, king of Basan, who lived in Astoroth. And so they say, listen, the report of what God has done is spreading. Okay. The report is going out, and so far we've seen Rahab's response. We've seen uh, the rest of Jericho's response. We've seen Ai's response. Uh, we've seen the response now of the rest of the armies of the Canaanites, and here, the Gibeonites. Jesus made very clear. Everyone will respond to me. He talked about the division among families. Just because there is a family unit with moms, dads, sons, and daughters, it doesn't mean that they'll be unified in me. Some of you know that too well. The power of God forces a response. The word of God, the power of God right now in the land of Canaan is forcing a response. Will you submit or believe or understand that this is the Lord or not? You and I have this opportunity every single day, seeing the power of God all around us, those around us responding in the same way. And so here the word is spreading, and the Gibeonites seem to be responding. Now in a really, really epic moment, verse 11. So our elders, the um, brigade is continuing to share, and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet with them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Now, uh, I'm a big uh, war movie guy, big Braveheart guy. I know some of you guys like Braveheart. thought about uh, painting my face blue tonight just for fun, but I decided against it, okay, in better wisdom. But uh, one, of the, one of the best scenes in Braveheart is when there's like this exact moment. When William Wallace and some of his comrades have come on horses and you have uh, some of the other army and they come together and they're trying to like negotiate and work it out, right? This is that moment, okay? You have the leaders of the Israelite army, for lack of a better term, and now you have some of the leaders, okay, of the brigade of the Gibeonites. Listen, our our elders sent us. We're here in peace. We want to be your servants, we can work this out. Let's make a covenant. We good, right? Everyone good? You, you kind of picture the tension here. Here is our, now they show the evidence in verse 12. Here's our bread. 
It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. And you guys are with me? Nothing worse than crumbly and dry bread unless it's a crouton. Verse 13, these, these wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. They have holes in them. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So here's what's happened so far. They've offered peace. They've communicated that they want to be servants. They've shown very, very clear evidence. And now they've given Joshua and the nation of Israel an opportunity to respond. And so the question is, how will they respond? Now, before we read verse 14, this is one of those stories that if, if you just read it once through, uh, you could be like, what is even the point of the Gibeonite deception? This story is worthless for our growth. This makes no sense. But when you step back from the story and you keep letting the word marinate in your heart, all of a sudden, verse 14 becomes a hinge point potentially in your faith. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Let me read again for you. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua, look, made peace with them, the deceiving Gibeonites, the cunning Gibeonites with them, and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Uh, Joshua is how old have we said? Okay, like 90-ish. He's seen a lot. He's traveled a lot of territory. He was boys with Moses, okay, which already is a resume builder. right? He, he's watched the river stop up, not just the river. He saw the sea. He has seen two armies fall. With all of the evidence that Joshua has before him and all the season and all the age, the scripture says he doesn't ask the counsel of God. You would think that in this moment that that would be a natural piece of the lifestyle of Joshua. Right? It, it would seem like, listen, this is a no-brainer. We're, we're, we've come to this point. we got people that we're a little bit suspicious of. Listen, we need to hold off on making a covenant. What we're going to do first is seek the Lord. That's what we're going to do. Just a natural part of the lifestyle of Joshua. But can you see for a second... What I'm seeing, just because Joshua has seen a ton, just because he's old and seasoned, just because he has a name that represents the name of Christ, all of those things going for him, doesn't mean, doesn't mean he is without error. He doesn't seek the counsel of the Lord. He doesn't wait on the Lord. And unfortunately now puts the entire nation in a very, very precarious situation. And so this opens now a whole gamut of things that I want to share with you and wrestle uh, with together. But let's start by saying this. Seeking counsel from God is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. And what I've had to ask myself, and this is what I'm asking you, my friends, to ask yourself, is it your lifestyle? God, where you want me to go, I'll go. God, what you want me to say, I'll say. God, what you want me to do, I'll do. 
I'm going to do nothing apart from you and without you. I can't live without you, God. And your natural tendency, the natural flow, the natural lifestyle of you is to go to God. The reality is we're great at going to people. We're great at going to people that will be in our camp. We're great at going to people that will give us some high fives, some handshakes, and encourage us on our way. We're good at going to the culture. We're good at pursuing and seeking wisdom from all kinds of different sources. What I'm wondering, though, is seeking the wisdom and counsel of God, your lifestyle. So I want to help you understand this. Okay, next slide. I've told you guys before, everyone everywhere in the entire world, whether you live in Abu Dhabi or you live in St. Elmo, Illinois, okay, or you live in wherever, you're looking for two things, love and truth. I've shared with you guys before, and if you've ever gone through the MV here, what I always talk about is our heart here at Matthias is to put love in front of truth. In other words, we're going to love you with the love of the Lord and the fellowship of God, and we long to share the truth of Christ with you. But those two things is what every single person in this room included are looking for. And so what happens, next slide, is how you go after love. Let's say it this way. The well that you approach to find love, it shows what kind of lifestyle you're interested in living. So the reality is, the evidence is, some of you have been going to a well in search for love, both an eternal love, a relational love, and some of you are experiencing the the deadness of a well that is anywhere, anywhere apart from God. If there is not a well that is not God, then let let me tell you what happens. You go to a well that isn't the Lord, and you try to run that thing deep, It will never fail to come up empty, to come up dry, okay? But it shows your lifestyle. You pursue love. You're lowering down that bucket in a well that's anything but God. It will always come up dry. Truth, counsel, wisdom works the exact same way. Now, the question is, why isn't uh, the lifestyle of Joshua right now um, to seek the Lord? And I have some, I have some uh, opportunities for us to understand that. But before, I want to help show you how this functions in our life. Three scenarios, three situations. Let's start here. Okay. How should we or can we approach language and joking, all right? So what we could do is we could go to the counsel of God Go to the well of the Lord. Go to the truth of the scripture. Go to the truth of the scripture that's aligning with the Holy Spirit in us. We could seek that. I mean, run after it. God, what do you have to say about language and joking? Or we can go to the well of what our culture would define as appropriate and inappropriate. And listen, this is, this is one of the humorous pieces of Christendom to me, and certainly at times a battle for myself. We can justify 
justify our sin from just about every angle, right? Like this is one, we would say, one of our greatest gifts. Oh, I can justify my sin like the best of them, right? I got a trophy, okay? Master justifier, right? Like, like we can do this, and especially, especially when it comes to joking language. Listen, Lord, I don't need your counsel. I don't need your wisdom. I'm going to go to the well that, that I've built. The problem is the counsel of God says this. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Okay, so can anyone make that say anything else? Okay. Well, you know, there's, I mean, if they, if, you know, the word filthiness in the Greek actually means, uh, actually, no, that means filthiness. Um, no, carry the one, no. like, right? And listen, I'm just like choosing ah example here. The opportunities to teach this principle from the word are profound. Now, what does the evidence say? What does the evidence say about your life? Right? Does the evidence say, no, I'm, I'm seeking the counsel of God. I'm delighting in the law of the Lord, like Paul said in Romans. Am I going after what God has to say on the issue? Or am I letting other Christians define for me the looseness of my tongue? Now, what you're not going to get here at Matthias is legalism. Not going to happen. So some of you are like, whoa, whoa, Mark. Whoa, whoa. So the next time I say a naughty word... Right? Like, what's going to happen? Listen. Listen. We are under grace, my brothers and sisters. So celebrate grace. Bathe in grace. You're not going to get legalism. It's not going to happen. Okay? So this isn't a legalistic teaching on you better stop saying that word or that word. All I'm trying to do is ask you, are you interested? Am I interested in following the counsel of God and seeking the counsel of God? Or am I building my own well? Dictating truth, defining it for me. Listen, Joshua has every opportunity to seek the counsel of God. Instead, he puts 1.5 to 2.5 million people vulnerable. This is just one scenario. Let's keep moving on. Next slide. How about this? Use of time. Right? Um, There's a lot of language in our culture like, I just need some me time. Have you noticed that there's a lot of things that people say that eventually you just articulate out of your mouth? And then when you stop and understand what you're actually saying, you realize how anti-Christ it is? Oh, I just need some me time. Yeah, that's not biblical at all. You were bought with what? You were bought with a price. Purchased. Ransomed. So at the moment of my salvation, there is no more me time. Like that, that's the laying down. That is the joy of following Christ. I'm giving up my calendar and my watch because now my entire life is his and it's my joy to give it. He purchased me, purchased many of you. But you see what I'm saying? The use of time, this is your time. There will never be one day where I wake up and it is my day. That's why I tell every single wedding and some people, especially family members, get a little hangry at me. Because I'll stand up at the, at, the rehearsal, at, the, at the rehearsal dinner, right? And I'll say, hey, listen, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. This isn't your daughter's day. And some moms are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Where would you guys get this preacher? You know what I'm saying? Did you Google him or something? You know, like, you guys need to put him back, right? And I'll make very clear, listen, listen, this isn't her day. This is the Lord's day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And guess what? Tomorrow is two and the day after that. So we can listen and build our own well and look at what culture is doing and looking at how they're spending their time and then, you know, dividing the, the time of our family based upon that. Or, next slide, we can submit to some counsel. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are, are evil. Every single second for the glory of God and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Of God and the passages go on and on and on. Hello, how about one more, my friends? Next slide. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Right? There's a whole lot of wells on this one. Right? There's a whole lot of wells. And and trust me, I understand why. Because what some godly biblical men have done is they've in a chauvinistic domineering, abusive way, try to use passages to tell their wives what submission really is. And in so doing, not following Christ at all. But listen, there's a whole lot of wells built here. Right? Well, listen, I I know what the scripture says about, you know, men being in the serving, leading role in their home. But listen, that was in a different day for a different culture. And if people decide to use that argument, apart from the counsel of God, which are many in the New Testament, if they decide to use that argument, then where does the argument stop? Is the cross cultural as well? Is grace cultural? Is mercy and forgiveness? Well, the text is clear. Male leadership in a humble, next slide, way in Ephesians 5, all three of these passages from Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Listen, as we described here over and over, this isn't a domineering, chauvinistic, abusive role whatsoever. This is a humbling servant leadership role, but a role nonetheless, a role nonetheless. And so, we can just let culture define it, right? Listen, we can even let some other churches define it. Or we can say, God, what would you say on the issue? What have you told us? It's it's not so that men would be seen as the exalted being on the face of the planet. Oh my goodness, no. It's not so that men would be raised above women. Never. It's so that men would follow what God has laid out. So that women would follow what God has laid out. Who are we to say, oh, no, 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 but God, I've got a better way. But what I'm, what I'm communicating to you guys is I'm wondering how much of our life is dictated by that. Oh, we know the counsel of God says this, but I've got some counsel for you. It always cracks me up when a 16, 17, 18-year-old, and God, love them, I love them, love them. When they come up to me, right, and they're like, but Mark... One of my 18-year-old buddies uh, says that, you know, the scripture is interpreted this way, right? And that's kind of like lean a little bit, right? Oh, but one of my 18-year-old buddies said that it's okay to, you know, date a non-believer. Really? Okay? Can you bring that 18-year-old buddy of yours in, right? And we're going to talk about the word. Now, there's nothing against an 18-year-old in Christ. Obviously, don't, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, right? But, but it cracks me up how much we then throw other people in 
to make a defense against the counsel of God. Have you ever done that? Oh, well, so-and-so said this. Okay, so you two versus the Lord? Is that the odds you want, right? Well, actually, no, I actually, there's like three or four of us. Okay. Three or four against the Lord, right? Like it's, I mean, you're going to need some big old gloves, and they're not even going to come close, right? Listen, I, I, I'm going to propose some reasons, some ways. Well, I believe this is a battle for Joshua right now, but I want to make one thing very, very clear to you. The leader of the nation of Israel has yet to be in a lifestyle where going and seeking the counsel of God is natural. And so for those of you, like me, that are struggling with that, I hope you're slightly encouraged, more convicted, and longing for grace to reign supreme. So now that we understand what's happened and what Joshua has done, now let's dig into some of the aftermath of this Gibeonite deception. Verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, too late, they heard that they were neighbors (laughs) and that they lived among them. So seriously, just imagine, right, if your next door neighbors showed up at your doorstep and they had like dressed up in Halloween costumes. We've come from a faraway neighborhood to, right? And you're like, oh, right on. You know, and like, that's, that's precisely what's happened. Well, well, three days later, all of a sudden they find out. Can you imagine that moment? You know, I'm like, I'm imagining Joshua in his tent just kind of hanging out. So knock, knock, knock on the, um, no, that wouldn't be a knock. But like, hey, can I come in, you know? And, and, uh, and they come in, uh, hey, Joshua. Um, so about the whole covenant thing that we made with that people, uh, they're, actually our neighbors can you like can you imagine the moment for Joshua so what happens uh, after that and the people of Israel verse 17 they heard and pursued they set out and reached their cities on the third day now their cities were Gibeon Chephorah Baroth and and Kuriath Jerim okay say that 16 times sounds like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar anyway they they heard and pursued now, the big question is what's going to happen? Because you, like, you picture like Joshua busting out of his tent. Oh, yeah, I'll, all right. They, they lied to me. We'll see what happens to them. You imagine this like angered leader. Verse 18. But the people of God did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation, that's a lot. What's the word there? What's the word? Murmured. The Hebrew word is loon. Here's what's really interesting. The Hebrew word loon, the first definition of loon is at night. So the people, the congregation of the nation of Israel are murmuring, complaining, the inferences all night long. Let me take this opportunity to share something with you in all vulnerability. We are anti, in this body, the priestly model. The priestly model is, all right, so whoever's on stage, they're really the the called 
uh, communicative, uh, you know, spokesmans for the Lord. Uh, The problem is the scripture says, you are the royal priesthood. And the reason why that's important, because I and our four other elders have failed and we will fail again. We will make mistakes. We will jump too early. You guys know the beautiful balance of our eldership is that I am a jumper and a runner, okay? I'm going to run hard and jump quickly. And thankfully, other elders are not. And so there have been beautiful times where I've been like, no, 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 I think we need, you know, to X, Y, Z. And a couple of our elders would be like, well, hold on a second. Like, why would we do that right now? I think, yeah, yeah, you're right. Why would we do that right now? We need to pause and pray. That's the beauty of leadership. I'll make mistakes. Our other elders will make mistakes. At times, we'll, we'll move too slowly. But can I ask you, please, what happens in the looning at night, the murmuring in the body in the congregation here is a killer for the body. I'm going to share with you um, what I long uh, for you to hear. If there ever be issues things you're questioning, things you're wondering about, ways you're struggling with our leadership as an elder team, will you please, instead of looning, instead of murmuring, will you please just come to us? And what you're going to be met with is a non-defensive, non-defensive, I pray, humble heart that is ready to apologize and seek the Lord with you. Joshua made some mistakes. I'm going to make some mistakes our elder team. We don't want to make them. But one way we can battle against it is by being anti-loon. That'd be a great bumper sticker. I'm anti-loon, right? Like, kind of a weird way of saying it. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. We've made an oath. Verse 20, this we will do to them. We're going to let them live. Lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. We made an oath. We made a covenant. We're not going to go back on that. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. And what we come to find out later is the Gibeonites actually do this in function at like the tent of assembly for the nation of Israel. They become some of the drawers of water and some of the, some of the wood cutters as a part of the worship of the nation of Israel. And you guys will remember Deuteronomy 20. If peace is offered, then they're to what? You guys remember? They're to serve. So this is what's happening. We made an oath. Verse 22, Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us though? Saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us. Now therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God, he says, and I, I love the irony of Joshua saying, my God. Why? Because of verse 24. They answer Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Do you understand what the Gibeonites just said? We heard and obviously we believed. All the other nations are what? They're getting their weapons ready. 
They're arming themselves for battle. But the Gibeonites are like, we heard what God had told Moses. We've seen what God has done. And so we feared. We feared for our lives. Yes, we deceived. Remember, Rahab did too. Lied to the king. Yes, we deceived. And now, verse 25, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. And the text ends with verse 26 and 27. So we did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill. Verse 27, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day and the place that he should choose. These people end up going to be and make prominent prominent pieces of the nation of Israel in a serving role. But the tension of the story, the reality of Joshua's mistake, causes us to really, really dwell both hardly and harshly on some realities. Next slide. Let's say it this way. Joshua was deceived because he did not seek counsel from God. Have you ever been deceived because you did not seek counsel from God? Have you ever believed lies? The lies that you hear, the lies that someone else said, the lies that a teacher communicated to you because you did not seek the counsel of God. Well, what's humbling for me as I wrestle with that and the own, uh, my own sin that I have in this is God has given me every access to his counsel. He's given you every access to his counsel. He's like, he's here. Like, take this. I'm going to give you a gift. Here you go. Counsel and wisdom. Matthew chapter 7 says, if you hear these words, after uh, the, the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you hear these words, you're like a wise man. You're like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. But if you hear these words and don't do them, you're like a foolish man. So why in the world, if we have access to the counsel of God, to the wisdom of God, if Joshua had access to the counsel of God and the wisdom of God, why did he not pursue it? Why don't, why don't we? Next slide. Reasons why we do not seek God's counsel. Number one, we really don't want to know the answer. Or is it that you know the answer and by not pursuing it and seeking it out, it gives you that feeling good inside thing that, that you're, you're just naive. Listen, I, I know the text talks about forgiveness, but if I don't read it, I mean, I can just believe forever that I, I don't need to forgive when God says to forgive for your joy and your freedom. What's something right now that you don't want to know the answer on? What's something happening in your life right now that you're worried of what God's counsel would be? This year for me was a massive year. I was meeting with a good brother earlier today. Just sharing with him um, earlier uh, this year as I started walking through the text so profoundly impacted by the amount of times that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to deny our flesh. 
I would summarize 2016 by saying that I've processed what it means to die to myself more than any other year. But it's one thing to process it, and it's a whole other thing to submit to it. And so I've, I've had to wrestle yet again. God, what does it mean for me and my family and my brothers and sisters who I care for so much? What does it mean for us to die to ourselves? And I'm wondering if I want to know the answer to that. I'm wondering if we would be okay if God stepped in and said, listen, you you people have really learned how to live just like culture with a little bit of seasoning on top. But I have a new way to show you. I'm wondering if we would be ready. I'm wondering if I am. I'm just saying I, I think sometimes we don't seek the counsel of God because we're not really that interested in finding out what God has to say. Secondly, right? The time, uh, at times the effort of fasting and praying and waiting to hear from God through the scripture, waiting to get godly affirmation from someone pursuing the Lord, that time and the patience at times needed to wait on the Lord. Again, I'm just speaking out of my own convictions, my own repentance that I know is needed. I, at times, richly struggle with patience. And yet I read the psalmist who enjoyed the process of waiting on the Lord. And, And that's what I'm saying right now. Is it possible that we've misconstrued waiting on the Lord and we've put like a yoke and a burden around it? Instead of thanking God for the chance to wait on his counsel. God, we're not going to move unless you say. We're not going to uh, process unless you say. We're not going to say this unless you tell us to communicate. Now, now I, I know some of you are like, but Mark, how do we live? Are we talking about restaurants and like where to, where to drive? Listen. The scripture makes clear, stay in step with the spirit of God. God has given us the spirit that is guiding us. But I believe we take way, way too much advantage of that distant from the Lord and able to be patient on him and see the joy that it is just to say, God, I'm going to sit right here and fast for 48 hours because I long to hear from you, God. I will not move until you speak to me, Lord, through your scripture. Thirdly, reasons why we don't seek God's counsel. We don't want to share the glory, right? What I mean is, like, if I sought God, then I have to, like, give him some credit. And, and listen, I'll, I'll make, some of you give God way too much credit. Now, hold on a second. Some of you put words in God's mouth that he didn't say. Stop. Oh, and God said this, and God said that. Okay, well, hold on a second. First of all, what you just said doesn't align with Scripture. So God doesn't go against Scripture ever. And can we agree with something? Just because someone said, God said something, unless it's in the word, it doesn't mean it's true. Are we together? So test your brothers and sisters. 
Oh, and, and listen, God told me to do this. And we see this all the time in relationships, right? In the old classic high school, you know, breaking up. Oh, and God said I need to break up with you. Okay, well, this happens in so many regards. Stop giving God credit for things that you've construed in your own mind. Okay. At the same time, some of you not and unwilling to share the glory. If I bring God into this, then I'm going to have to tell people that God did a work. And finally, number four, reasons why we do not seek God's counsel. We doubt God's love and plan. Let me say it this way. If I seek God's counsel, and I read passages that talk about me dying to my flesh, and I sense through the affirmation of the word and the moving of the Holy Spirit in me, that God is calling me to sell my home, which I'm comfortable in, to go down to a way lesser scale of life, am I ready and willing to trust that God still loves me? I think that's at the core of it for all of us. Are we willing to believe that what God has given us in this text is a loving, good father who has said, trust me. Let's stand together. So, at the end of all of this, um, the point that I've come to is that I long to seek God's counsel as a lifestyle. I want to run to that well. I don't want any other well of my own building to ever even be a temptation. Anyone else? I want to run to the well that never comes up dry. I want to go to the well, the source of all wisdom and truth. I I long for that. The, The question is how? And so I landed upon a psalm that really summarizes uh, what I long for our heart to be together. The psalmist says in Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. God, forgive us as a body for not earnestly seeking you, right? Forgive us, God. The beautiful truth is he will. My my soul thirsts for you. Could you imagine right now this being the cry of your heart? My soul thirsts for you. There's nothing else that satisfies. My, My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, the psalmist says. I'm reading this and my heart's like coming out of my chest. God, this is what I want. I want to seek you above all else. I want to thirst for you. I want my flesh to faint in the thought of you. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And what I've seen, the psalmist says, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than what? It's better than life. Your love, your grace is better than everything. And so I do long for you. 
I will seek you. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, in your name alone, I will lift up my hands. That's it, God. I have nowhere else to go. This is the cry of a people, of a person that are like, we have nowhere else to go. Not a culture, not a world, not a friend, not a relationship, God. Only you. Only you. Only you satisfy. And so maybe tonight the counsel of God begins by some of you believing for the first time that he has offered a way to himself through Christ. It's counsel. It's wisdom. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. Maybe for some of you tonight, this is your first response. Yes, I've denied it. I've doubted your plan. I've doubted your love. But tonight... God, help me believe I long to thirst for you like never before. Call on his name. The scripture says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those that already find themselves redeemed, for you and I tonight, it's a prayer in power right now that God will create in us a trust, a trust in who he is. So Father, now in this very moment help us believe again that your counsel that your wisdom that your truth never ever ever comes up empty help us believe that whatever you have for us that you are a loving dad directing and guiding his kids we confess our failure to submit to you and to go to you And we're praying that you make our lifestyle one that seeks you all the day long.